You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. I was remembering when I was writing this sermon that I had a real problem understanding the story of Cain and Abel. Why was the sacrifice given by Abel acceptable while the offering from Cain was rejected? It, it just didn't make any sense. Didn't Cain give what he had? It was actually really a real stumbling block in my view of God in those early days. Fortunately, fast forward a couple of decades, and is able to understand the importance of our hard attitudes. We'll come back to Cain and Abel story a little bit later in the sermon and how it relates to our subject matter today. Ecclesiastes is divided into many sections as a teacher attempts to find the satisfying and unifying keys to life and its purposes. We have already learned that the true satisfaction only comes from accepting God's plan for our lives even though we can't see our whole life's path ahead of us. Our lives should be marked by acceptance, not by making demands of God. Indeed, we who are God-fearing must continually draw near to God in order to be sensitive to his will. But important for today's message, we must draw near with the proper reverence and in a specific manner. Before we head to our text today, please join me in prayer as we commit this time to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you'd open our ears and our minds to the wisdom found in your word. I pray that you would use this broken servant, a sinful man, to exposit this text, that I would not make this about anything about me, that everything would point to you, to your truth, and ultimately to your glory. We pray these things in the holy name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So the title I gave this sermon today is Worship Under the Sun, and our verse is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. In preparation of the sermon, I found it interesting on how much information is given in Scripture for the plans for the Lord's temple. The details of how it was to be constructed are very specific and outlined in 1 Chronicles 28, 11 to 19. Here we would see not only the specifications of each room, but also the intricate schematics for each and every utensil to be used by the priests. It made me wonder why so much time is spent with these details and why we as Christians would struggle to find in Scripture where we would learn how we should worship God in this temple. This is really where the crux of Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7 comes in. The Lord really did provide us specific plans on how he should be approached in worship. Perhaps before we dive into our verses today, let's spend some time flushing out what worship means in this context. The Dallas Theological Seminary describes worship in this way, an act of response to God where we declare his worth. Another source says, to worship is to quicken the consciousness by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, 
and to devote the will to the purposes of God. True worship is reserved only for God with God-centered worship. People tend to get caught up in where they should worship, what music they should sing, what they should wear, how their worship looks to other people. Focusing on these things misses the point. Jesus tells us in John 4.24 that true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. This means we worship from the heart and in a way that God has designed. Worship can include praying, reading, and listening to God's word with an open heart, singing, participating in communion, and serving others. It's not limited to one act, but is done, when it's done properly, the heart and attitude of the person are in the right place. So with those definitions in the back of my mind, let's turn to the section of scripture, Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7. If you do not bring a Bible today, there should be one provided in the pew in front of you. If you do not have a Bible of your own that you can easily read, please take this copy home with you. It's important to have God's word open in front of you. For one, it keeps the preacher accountable. And secondly, it really helps to lock in your mind when you read the verses for yourself. Let's read. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is to better than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay at paying for it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow that your vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should be God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Everyone is a worshiper. However, if we do not worship the Lord, then our worship will be directed towards something else. Some of those pursuits that we saw in the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes, for instance. But for the most part, because of our sin nature, typically we just end up worshiping ourselves or a God of our own making. This leads me to my first sermon point. Approaching God on our own terms is folly. Religion is by nature man's attempt to reconcile himself to what he considers God through his own plans and actions. You don't have to knock on a door, shave your head, avoid meat, or ride a bike while wearing a badge and a tie to be religious. A group of people adhering to a particular set of beliefs and practices qualifies as religion. In that sense, all people are religious in some way. Atheists are far more religious than they admit, fanatically insisting that nothing created everything. Sports fans idolize their favorite players and attend every performance. A visit I did to, to Graceland in Memphis was disturbing in the palpable idolatry of the, the former owner of the house. And large groups of people, irreligious people today, spend a lot of their time devoted to their electronic devices. You are religious even if you deny that you're religious. The critical question is whether the religion you adhere to is true or is it false. 
Does your religion honor the true God of the Bible, or does it offend him? Or an even more sobering question is, whether you are worshiping the true God or a God of your own imagination. Solomon himself was exposed to multiple forms of religion as he married multiple wives from various religions. Solomon tried to find contentment within religion, and we know that that didn't work out well for him. Okay, I realize here in the church we can easily spot where other religions are obviously missing the mark such as religions that were birthed out of visitations from angels that do not testify to Christ being God, or others that have a pantheon of gods which are clearly against our basic understanding of Scripture. Where it becomes more muddled and starts to pinch a bit is when we look at our Judeo-Christian roots and see that even how we approach and worship our Lord is extremely important. It does not take long to find examples in the Bible where people who knew how to approach the Lord tried to worship on their own terms. In Leviticus 10, 1-3, we hear, Now Nahab and Abahu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, it, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. We're not 100% sure of the details of the infraction of what Aaron's sons had done. But my MacArthur commentary suggests that the sons were drunk and had violated the prescription for offering incense. They had likely taken the fire from another source and had not taken it from the brazen altar as they had been instructed. Their act was careless, irreverent, and showed a lack of consideration towards God as they discarded the specific requirements. In order to show the other priestly class the importance of attitude in approaching the Lord and respect by following instructions, these acts had to be punished. It's important to note that their father Aaron (coughs) held his peace even though he just lost two of his sons. He knew the righteous judgment of the Lord had to be executed. Another story that really sticks out in my mind on the approach to worship is the story of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant, which is found in 2 Samuel 6, 1-7. Gotquestions.org really helped me to get a great summary of the story, so I've used some of their points here. Summing it up, as the Ark was being moved, the oxen cart stumbled, and a man from David's army named Uzzah touched the ark in order to prevent it from falling. God's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down dead instantly on the spot. Uzzah's punishment does appear to be extreme for what we consider to be a good deed. However, there are reasons why good God took such severe action. Firstly, God had given Moses and Aaron specific instructions about how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be moved. In Numbers 4, verse 15, it states, After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come to do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. No matter how innocently how it was done, 
Touching the ark was in direct violation of God's law and was to result in death. This was a means of preserving the sense of God's holiness and the fear of drawing near to him without appropriate preparation. Secondly, notice how David just used any old man in his army to move the ark. That was a great mistake, since it never had, should have been put on, an ark, on, a, on the cart on an ark, on a cart, ark on a cart to begin with. It was to be borne on man's shoulders and carried by Levites, and even more specifically, men specifically from the family of Kohat. Failing to follow God's precise instructions will be seen as, firstly, not honoring or revering God's word. Secondly, having an independent attitude that borders on rebellion. For instance, saying and seeing on acting in things from our own worldly view than a spiritual perspective. And thirdly, just a downright disobedience. David knew these instructions, yet he chose not to follow them, resulting in the death of one of his men. However, it did serve as a reminder to David and to us that we must approach the Lord in the correct manner. Something of God's presence in the ark seems to be lost in the church today. In the time of Moses, the people knew the awesomeness of God's absolute holiness. They had witnessed great miracles when the ark was with them. They respected that God's ways and thoughts are much higher than ours. In truth, the more we try to bring God down to our worldly ways of thinking or reasoning, the further away he will seem to us. Those who would draw near to God and have him draw near to them are those who approach him in reverence and holy fear. Uzzah forgot that lesson and the consequences were tragic. Now back to the story of Cain and Abel, which troubles me so much when I was young. Looking at these verses from an adult perspective with hopefully a better understanding of the holiness of the Lord, the theme of offering worship in the wrong manner and with the wrong attitude holds true to what we saw in the previous stories. The story is found in Genesis 4, verses 1 to 8. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will, not, will it not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Abel's offering was acceptable because it was in every way obediently given according to what God had revealed about the way to make offerings. Although nothing's recorded in Genesis, that's just the, the stance we have. The, the sacrifice was an animal. From Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The offering was the best of what he had, and it was given from a heart that was wanting to please God. Cain knew that his sacrifice had to be an animal, but chose what he wanted to bring, which was just some of his crop. It wasn't the Lord's personal preference for one brother over the other, as Cain might have suspected. The Lord reminds them that if he had obeyed and offered the animal sacrifice, that his offering would have been accepted. 
Cain did not repent for his attitude or sinful disobedience when the Lord spoke to him on his behavior. In fact, the chastening fueled even more anger, and he fell into that trap that the Lord had warned him about, that sin crouching at the door, and his disobedience would overpower him, which it did. His anger and rejection of the Lord made him hostile towards God and increased jealousy towards his brother, ultimately leading to his murder. So to summarize the first sermon point, an approach to to the Lord based on our own understanding and done in our own terms is not acceptable. It can lead to further sin or even to death. To truly approach God in a worthy manner, we first must understand the heart of the gospel, which is our second point. A proper understanding of the gospel will anchor our understanding of how we are to approach and worship the Lord. We here at Redemption have often summarized the gospel in four words. Man, God, Christ, response. In order to truly understand and be changed by the gospel, we must understand who God is, who we are, what Christ did, and what our response should be. Attributes of God. God is holy. Holy means set apart. And God is clearly separate from his creation based on his nature and attributes. Holiness is the foundation of all aspects of God's character. As Revelation 15.4 says of God, you alone are holy. Secondly, God is an eternal spirit. John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Thirdly, God is sovereign. He is judged by no one and has absolute authority over the entire universe and everything in it. His sovereignty is expressed in many ways, including his omnipotence. All his ways are right. Psalms 145.17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Whether mankind believes God's ways to be fair is irrelevant. The Lord God is not constrained by time or place. He has a plan. He has had it from eternity past, and his purposes will be accomplished. Next, God is immutable. He does not change, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. He states in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Because of his unchanging nature, we can depend on his blessings. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like sifting shadows. However, we must not overlook God's wrath, which flows from his holiness. He has a righteous anger against sin. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And because of God's impending judgment, mankind needs the gospel message of grace and salvation. Mankind is separated from God because of the sin nature we are born with. The sin nature is universal in all humanity. All of us have a sinful nature, and it affects every part of us. This is sometimes called the doctrine of total depravity. All of us have gone astray, as we see in Isaiah 53, 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Solomon himself states in Ecclesiastes 7.20, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And the Apostle John perhaps put it most bluntly in 1 John 1.8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So man, in our futility, tries to bridge the separation from God by trying to correct this by working harder and harder to meet a standard we can never hope to attain. That standard is perfection, which of course, it's futile for us to try. This is where religion is born, man's attempts to approach God by his own efforts in an endless swirl of works. For many, when that path is finally recognized and possible, they move the goalposts. They redefine the definition of God on their own terms so that their efforts can make them feel like they've reached them. To achieve this, God is so redefined that it bears no assemblance to the true holy God of the Bible. Then there are those who just try to fill that void with the temporary pleasures of this world, as we have seen in Ecclesiastes. To be truly reconciled to God, we need to meet a mediator, a sinless offering to pay that penalty of sin. We need to understand what Christ did. Because of God's love, he did not leave us in this state of separation and brokenness. Jesus, God in human flesh, lived with us, living a sinless life. Jesus came to rescue us, to do for us what we could not have done for ourselves. He took our sin and shame to the cross, paying the penalty for our sin by his death. Jesus was then raised from the dead to provide the only way for us to be rescued and to be restored to relationship with God. This is the good news. This is the gospel. However, this requires a response. To hear the gospel is not enough. We must admit our sin and stop trusting in ourselves and our own efforts. We must abandon all attempts to reach God apart from Christ. We must ask God to forgive us, turning from our sin to trust only in Christ. This is what it means to repent and believe. When God restores our relationship to him, we begin to see meaning and purpose in a broken world. Now we can pursue God's design in all areas of our lives. And when we do fail, we now have an understanding of God's pathway to be restored. So armed with a proper understanding of the nature of God, admitting our own sin and inability to approach the Lord on our own terms, and accepting and acknowledging Christ as the only way to bridge that gap, we can approach the Lord through Christ with the correct foundation for worship. I'm going to go back into Ecclesiastes now for a third point, which is be real when you worship. The picture of worship we see in Ecclesiastes is so sad. The worship at the temple has become vain, empty, and worthless. It is vain because it's offered so insincerely and is thoughtlessly motivated. Today in a congregation where this is the norm, you'd expect those who are true worshipers to have long since left. However, for whatever reason, there are those who are still religiously attending, and that is the situation at Jerusalem at this time, and that is to who those verses are directed towards. The teacher was concerned by the problems created by empty worship, and acknowledges that the root of this is finding out why does a person worship. 
Does a person worship because they recognize God is holy and ought to be praised because they have a good grasp of who God is? Or are there other motivations, such as being seen to be seen? Or is it the thing to do? There could be a multitude of wrong attitudes for worship. I believe the author handled the subject in the way he did because he knew our failure to worship God is properly is rooted in our being unprepared for worship or lack of attention to what is happening during worship or our inability or unwillingness to follow through on our commitments once we leave the sanctuary. These verses hold as much truth today as they did thousands of years ago. Let's break down our approach in a little more practical way. First step would be preparation before you worship. So we go back to verse Uh, Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. We should give our minds to worship long before we arrive at the place of worship so that when we arrive, our worship will be deliberate, grateful, and heartfelt. When we have those weeks where we didn't get that much out of it, typically those are the weeks where we fail to prepare our hearts for worship. It is interesting that some people get a lot from worship each week, while others never seem to appreciate the privilege. Why is it one person is moved while another person complains of never being fed? Is it a lack of preparation? Or are people confusing worship with entertainment? We should be able to worship even if the power goes off, with the pastor's voice then barely heard, and suddenly our music all becomes an unplugged version. Here's some practical ways to prepare ourselves. We ought to cultivate and anticipate for worship. Get excited. Church should be the highlight of our weeks. Pray for the upcoming service throughout the week. Pray specifically that the Lord speaks to each person in the service and that the Lord speaks to you. Prepare physically. Get enough sleep the night before. Make sure you're not physically exhausted emotionally distracted or mentally preoccupied. And prepare spiritually, confessing your sin that you're aware of, getting your heart right before the Lord. Secondly, our stance during worship. We don't come to church in a casual fashion. Back to our verse five in chapter five. To draw near to listen is to better than to offer sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Go near to listen means coming to worship with an open, humble heart with listening ears. Let's not tell God what and what he cannot do. That's, that's just sinful. Come with an attitude that we will hear from the Lord, and that is to be our goal. Listening here is paramount. Practically speaking, is that we come to church with the intent to listen for God to speak to us through the message, the song, fellowship. As well, we have the attitude of listening with obedience. So once we hear God speak, We obey what we hear him say. Reverence is incredibly important here. Reverence is a deep recognition of who God is. The sacrifice of fools are empty words. A fool has totally forgotten who God is 
and he, that he is a sinner, if in fact he actually knew to begin with. He takes liberty with God's grace and patience. A fool here is such a fool, he doesn't even know that he's doing evil. He is hasty with his words, not really thinking them through, not being sincere in what and how he says them. In contrast to the sacrifice of fools, the sacrifice of the faithful is a broken and contrite heart. In Psalms 51, 14, 17, we read about David's response to his, his sin being revealed and his true repentance. It says, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth, and I declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will not give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So David here understands that the only sacrifice the Lord wants is a broken and contrite heart. And that's what we should offer to the Lord ourselves. We cannot bring anything to God that he would be, would be acceptable, but a heart that acknowledges that we are not worthy and then point all the praise back to him. A fool's voice is known by his many words. He really can't help himself than that. There is a huge difference between us and God. The Lord is holy and in heaven. We are sinners here on earth. The fool seems to forget this fact and speaks in a manner that does not give God the glory or reverence that he deserves. When we see, let your words be few, it's not so much speaking about the length of our prayers, but really the content and substance. In James 1.19 we read, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So God is not against long or persistent prayers. They mean something to the one raising them. He welcomes us spending much time in prayer. But he does not want empty, vain words that don't come from the heart. Think of it this way. Remember a conversation you had with someone whose mind was somewhere else? They may have been speaking towards you, but they are not speaking to you. This is irritating and disrespectful. Why would we then do the same thing towards the Lord? Remember in our prayers that we are talking to the creator of the universe and should have an awe and reverence. Speaking with the Lord isn't a casual conversation like you have with someone at the store. And when we hear a foolish worship being compared with a dream-filled night, he touches on a subject that most people understand. We have all had those crazy days when so much was going on and was very overwhelming, so that finally when we do get down to sleep, our night is filled with tossing and turning and some of the weirdest dreams you'll ever have. Well, just as a hectic day causes weird dreams, so a fool spews out empty words. Where you have one, you have the other. And as Forrest Gump says, stupid is as stupid does. So let us not play the fool in our worship. Remember who God is and who you are. Ah, reverence, humbleness, contrite heart should be the earmarks of our stance of worship. That's to be directed to the holy and living God. Finally, after worship, what should our stance be? When we talk to non-Christians about church, one of the biggest observations and complaints we hear about is how there are so many hypocrites in church
In this next section of scripture, the teacher is talking about hypocritical worship. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. I noticed in verse 4 that it says, when you make a vow, not if you make a vow. We have all made vows or commitments and will likely continue to do so. The point of these verses is not to take vows lightly, but if they must be made, that they should be paid back without delay. No one with half a conscience would make a vow without feeling the full intention of keeping it. However, it's easy to be convicted during a service, make a vow, walk out, and thinking we're going to, we'll get to it tomorrow. But what happens is tomorrow becomes next week, next week becomes next month, and then that becomes next year, which eventually becomes never. A consequence is that so many Christians live defeated lives because they have made vows to God that they have never kept. In Proverbs 20, 25, Solomon writes, it is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. In other words, it's easy to make a vow in a sincere moment and then avoid it once we have time to consider its costs. When reading this, I think of the old Billy Graham crusades where thousands of people would come down the sawdust trail to the front to make an emotional decision to follow Christ. Even the Billy Graham Evangelical Association acknowledges that most of these decisions or vows were sincere at that exact second, but soon forgotten as the true cost of following Christ is realized. One of the clearest examples of how seriously we should be taking our vows is found in Acts 4, 34 to Acts 5, 1 to 11. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostle Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Aninus and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for you a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up and wrapped him and carried him and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down on his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came among the whole church upon all who had heard of these things. The couple had sold some property, apparently, to keep a vow they had made. But when it came time to pay it, they withdrew part of it, but presented it to the rest as if this was the entire amount they'd be received. They were both struck dead by the Lord because they withheld what they pretended to give to the Lord. It's a serious business when we make vows to God. We should never take vows lightly. Sometimes, as we see in verse 6, the consequences of not keeping our vows outweighs the cost of paying them. This is vanity. In verse 7, we see that if we never make commitments to the Lord, that our growth in the Lord will be stunted. We do need to make vows, but we must make sure they are well thought out, sober, deliberate, thoughtful, and above all, reverent. Keeping them so our worship does not become more and more vanity in a vain world. So, as we wrap up, when we come to church, let us have hearts and attitudes that have been prepared. During worship, let's have the right stance of awe that gives God the glory and we come expecting to hear from him with an attitude of quiet reverence and obedience, remembering who God is, who we are, and what Christ has done so that we're even able to approach the Lord. Being careful and reflective with our words, we quietly listen to hear from the Lord, and once we do, we are led by the Lord to vow something. We need to respond quickly, doing what we have promised to do. Let's pray. Lord, I know you've been challenging us today. and I was challenged as I was preparing for this sermon today. But Lord, we thank you for your encouragement. You have taken the time in your word to lay out those plans for how you want to be worshipped. Father, help us not to take those things lightly. Help us to confess where we have been irreverent and selfish. And Lord, help us to be always seeking you and always seeking you first in these things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.